This is an ABC podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. How much do you know about OCD? I'm not talking about your housemate who always wants you to wipe the bench after you make toast. I'm talking about obsessive compulsive disorder. It's pretty common for us to label anything we find annoying an OCD trait. But this condition affects hundreds of thousands of Australians. So what causes it? We're going to talk a bit more about it later on. So if you or someone close to you lives with OCD, you'll probably want to listen out for that. Also, we're getting into those platforms you use to apply for rental properties. Like how secure are they? What kinds of algorithms are holding us back from getting a place? First, though, another story and just a warning to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners. We're about to speak about a First Nations person who's died. It is the law of the state and people can have views on whether it's a good law or otherwise. And I don't think locking people up because they are drunk is a sign of success. On Triple J. Did you know Victoria and Queensland are the only places in Australia where public drunkenness is still a crime? That's going to change later this year. The Victorian government's announced it's abolishing the crime of public drunkenness and that's going to come into effect on Melbourne Cup Day in November. Instead of being arrested and locked up, intoxicated people are going to be taken to sobering up centres or other safe places like their home or a friend's place. There's been a lot of campaigning around this for years, especially since the death of Yorta Yorta woman Tanya Day in 2017. We're going to hear from Tanya's daughter April in a bit. But first, there have been some mixed responses to this law change. Police are worried they're not going to have enough powers to deal with drunk people at big public events. Kimberly Price has been looking into it. There are a lot of younger people caught up in public drunkenness and many of those young people will actually not be arrested for drunkenness again, whether they're black or white. Meet Narita Waite, the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service and part of the group who campaigned to decriminalise public drunkenness in Victoria. Since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody over 30 years ago, there have been calls to end public drunkenness laws across the country. Victoria is the second last place in the country country after Queensland to make these changes. The Department of Health has recommended the government take a health-based approach for people who are drunk in public. There's been a long process of consultation, whether it be with police, um, first responders, health bodies, drug and alcohol experts, those with lived experience. There's a lot that has gone into this reform. The health-based approach means instead of being taken to jail, people who are drunk in public may be taken to a sobering up centre, a friend's place, their own home or where needed to a hospital. While the fight to change these laws has been going for 30 years, Narita says it really came to a head after the coroner's court ruled that the death of Yorta Yorta woman Tanya Day in December 2017 was preventable. Um, Tanya Day passed away after falling and hitting her head in a police cell in Castlemaine, Victoria. She was in that police cell because she had been detained for being drunk in a public place after falling asleep on a train. In 2020, the final inquest into the death of Tanya Day found that police should have taken her to the hospital or sought urgent medical attention instead of arresting and detaining her. Her death was clearly preventable had she not been taken into police custody, that the checks police officers conducted on Tanya Day were inadequate and that police officers actually failed to take proper care for her health, her safety, her security and of course her welfare. 
There will be an Aboriginal service response in metropolitan Melbourne and 10 regional and outer metropolitan locations as part of the changes too. Data tells us that putting drunk people in jail targets people who need help the most and can actually mean that those people are more likely to go to jail in the future on other charges. Narita hopes these laws will change that. Our data shows that 30 to 40 Aboriginal people a month are being arrested by police in Victoria in connection with public drunkenness. Each one of those people are being unnecessarily harmed. The laws were meant to come into play last November, but were delayed for further consultation. The government documents revealed the laws will be lifted on Melbourne Cup Day on November 7, a move which has angered some first responders and has police fearing that they won't have the adequate powers to protect people at one of the state's biggest events. We think that the reform is progressive. I mean, we've never been opposed to decriminalising public drunkenness. We just want to make sure police officers in Victoria and PSOs retain the powers to be able to keep the community safe. That's Victoria Police Association CEO Wayne Gatt. He says there needs to be more work done so police know their powers when dealing with people who are drunk in public. That is to move on the people that say, no, I'm not going into a sobering up service. No, I'm not going home. No, I don't want to leave this place despite the impact I'm having on others. He says Victoria isn't yet in line with other states which have already decriminalised public drunkenness. Those governments have quite sensibly left police with the powers to act. They've either kept powers to detain or or move people on or they've replaced powers with new ones to enable them to facilitate the health model. Sergeant Gatt fears that there will be a gap in the services between regional and metropolitan areas. What that means is we're going to see a haphazard rollout and and a threat to community safety as a result. Premier Daniel Andrews has defended the timeline for decriminalising public drunkenness. It has to be an operative date and I'm confident that between Victoria Police, our health services and other announcements that we'll make between now and the end of the year, uh, we will uh, have a much better system in place. Narita says while there's still work to be done, She's hopeful the changes will roll out smoothly. Despite some of the challenges and some of the things that we need to address, we're in a good place to enact this reform come November. Hack on Triple J. Kimberly Price with that story. I want to get into this a bit more now. And with us is April Day. She's from the Dajua Foundation, which is a group campaigning to stop black deaths in custody. April is also the daughter of Tanya Day. Hey, April, thanks for joining us on Hack. Hi, thanks for having me. Look, I'm sure you've been through all kinds of emotions over the past few years, uh, you know, even the last few months. I'm wondering what it feels like for you knowing that after all this campaigning, the law is changing in Victoria to abolish the crime of public drunkenness. Yeah, look, um, yeah, as you said, like it has been a really difficult time for us and there are a lot of emotions associated with, you know, losing mum, but especially the campaigning component of it um there has been a lot of work put into it and it's purely because that law is a racist law it's used to target and criminalize um our people but as well as other people of color so for me even though um we wish that it was decriminalized before we lost mum it is a bittersweet moment because um, we do truly believe that once this is decriminalised, that we will continue to keep communities a lot safer than what they currently are now. And I mean, you, you mentioned your mum, but it's also really personal for your family in the sense that your mum's uncle also died in police custody years ago as well, right? Yeah, he did. He was actually um, 
when he died in custody, he was sober and he was arrested for a $10 unpaid fine for public drunkenness, which he was arrested and suffered an epileptic fit and died in a true police cell. So what we're seeing is obviously that um, intergenerational trauma and criminalisation of our people. And it's exactly why Uncle Harrison's case um, was uh, used... Um, as evidence in the Royal Commission to Aboriginal Deaths in Custody and why public drunkenness had been recommended to be abolished back then. So what we've obviously seen is 30 um, odd years later, um, the Victorian government has failed to make that commitment, which has then impacted our family again, where we lost mum. So um, Victoria and Queensland are the current states that are still criminalising people for being drunk in a public place. So, um, yeah, we are hoping that once this goes through that, you know, Queensland can also follow suit. But what we know from those Royal Commission recommendations is that they're there to actually stop people from dying. And I just, it's really frustrating to hear that people aren't taking them seriously and it's a constant fight to fight for the humanity and the lives of our loved ones. April, there is some worry, as we've just heard about this change being brought in, well, specifically for Melbourne Cup Day, but we've got some police ambulance workers you heard before from the Victoria Police Association saying, uh, we need more planning in place around this before it happens. How do you respond to that? Look, I think where I stand with this, and, you know, like we've worked really closely um, in terms of like... Uh, you obviously see a lot of the work that we do publicly, but there's a lot of work that we do um, in consultation with this reform. So um, I would like to obviously see our communities supported to and funded adequately, adequately to be able to support the reform. But what I don't want to see is police, um, the police association, masking community care for their police powers being stripped. Um, I think that that is... Uh, a narrative that they've been pushing a fair bit and if they were truly worried for our communities um, they wouldn't actually be arresting someone like mum who was asleep on a train and not caring for her while they're in their custody and when she dies like at that time of when mum had died she really should have been in a hospital so I this narrative of oh you know like we support the reform, but we need A, B and C to keep community safe. I, I, I don't buy that because when this starts to come in, it's actually when we're talking about stripping their powers away and pulling the funding away from what they're currently doing. And, you know, even just like, it's been quite difficult sitting back and reading the news articles um, for how the police association has been acting. And, you know, I find it, quite offensive and disgusting how like Wayne Gat conducts himself but especially this past week and that his comments are quite dangerous and harmful because um, he's presenting this narrative and when I hear things like this I see it as a, a perfect example of what's actually wrong with policing and the criminalization of communities in this country and it also speaks to the fact of police accountability and the lack of acknowledgement for my mum and for our family and, you know, what we've lost in the work that we're doing. And it's just, I would like for them to strongly consider the impact that public drunkenness plays on our communities, 
but as well as educating themselves on the Royal Commission to Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, the recommendations, what happened to mum, even just the true history of this country, to be able to conduct themselves in a way that really is true to that community care. Because well, what I'm... We'll, we'll, yeah. do, we'll certainly keep, um, you know, on top of this April and, um, you know, we'll be checking in and obviously following this story as we get closer uh, to November and to these laws being enacted. April Day from the Dajua Foundation. Appreciate you coming on Hack. Thank you. Hack. The renters are really at the mercy of these businesses just to trust them that they're doing the right thing. On Triple J. Hey, are you applying for a rental right now? Because if you are... Chances are you're using one of those third-party platforms to apply, something like To Apply, Ignite, Snug, something like that. Anyway, Consumer Group Choice has asked a whole bunch of people using these platforms what they think, and it turns out that most of you don't want to be using them. You're freaked out about the amount of private data they're collecting. But obviously, you feel like you've got no other option. It's a big thing, right? There's more to this as well because people are worried about the algorithms some of these platforms reportedly use to effectively score you against other applicants. If you've been using these platforms, what's been your experience? Have you decided not to use them because you're worried about your privacy? Have you brought it up with the agent? Let me know. Call in 1300 555 You can message in as well, 0439757555. I want to dig into this a bit more with an expert. Linda Peradetsky is a researcher at the University of Technology in Sydney. She's doing a PhD in rental technologies. Hey, Linda, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Thank you for having me. These apps were supposed to make stuff easier for people, right? At first they seemed great, but now there are all kinds of questions. Can you explain how they work? So there are a range of different apps. The ones that I'm particularly concerned about are the ones that people use to apply for rental properties. Now, some of the things that I'm concerned about is uh, are the vast amounts of data that people are required to put into these apps. Uh, also the costs of background checks just to apply for a property. Now, the other issue is that we don't know how the information, the data that you're putting into these apps are being used. We don't know if they're being used in discriminatory ways, if information is potentially being used against renters. How do the algorithms work? Because that's the thing that kind of really concerns me, I guess, that there's potentially these algorithms that are scoring tenants against each other. That's right. So last year, I was able to show that uh, an algorithm from the renting app Snug actually increased its match score when uh, applicants offered above the advertised price. Oh, we seem to have lost Linda there. Linda, are you still with us? Yes, hello. Oh, Oh, great. Yeah, no, sorry, you just dropped out there. If you can keep going talking about how these algorithms work. Yeah, so uh, I was able to prove last year that the uh, algorithm in the rental application Snug was uh, giving renters more points when they offered above the advertised price of a property. This was extremely concerning, particularly when rental laws in multiple states was were trying to outlaw rent bidding. 
Now, overseas, uh, the situation is even more concerning. Some of the algorithms look at people's social media profiles, for example, to generate scores around how likely people are to damage a property. Uh, they cl also claim to uh, be able to predict how likely the applicant is to pay rent on time. Now, these are mathematical calculations and they can't predict the future. So saying that they can just spit out a score that will give the landlord or the real estate agent uh, an accurate uh, prediction as to how the uh, tenant will behave is absolutely ludicrous and we need to regulate to pr protect renters in Australia and make sure that these apps do not come on the market here. Yeah, that's crazy to think that they're the kinds of things that the apps, um, you know, are, are doing. They're, they're using your personal information, your social media feeds to gain a picture of you and make predictions about what you might be like in the future. I mean... I don't want to think about what they might find if they look at my social media feed from a little while ago. Um, <laughs> Neither do I. I guess what a lot of people would be asking is what option have I got if, you know, I don't want to sign up to these apps because it's often the only alternative. Look, that's the whole problem. Uh, whether you don't want to use one of these apps for privacy reasons or perhaps you don't have access to a computer or struggle to use some of the technologies uh, that are necessary to um, put your application through, renters are really being left without a choice. Uh, it is an automatic disadvantage if they're not uh, applying through the agent's preferred system. So in this instance, uh, this is why we need to intervene and we need to make sure that there are other alternatives and that the information that these apps are asking for and what they can use uh, is actually regulated in Australia to make sure that people are not being unfairly treated or discriminated against. Uh, in the way that it's currently operating, there is just so much opacity. Uh, I mentioned the app that was giving me a match score. Uh, my partner and I received a match score of 73 when we applied for a property and we had no explanation given to us uh, as to where the other 27% went. <laughs> but most of them don't even give you that feedback. So we need more transparency and we need better protections for renters. And in the course of your research, Linda, has it been easy, hard getting information out of the platforms themselves? Oh, it's super hard. Uh, I think one of the biggest issues is that everyone says, you know, it's a trade secret. It's something that's a proprietary algorithm. That may be the case, but it it's not okay to have these algorithms out there scoring, rating and ranking people when they're trying to access an essential service, the essential service being housing. Everyone needs a roof over their head and the process to access a home, to rent a home, uh, should be simple, should be fair and uh, should be accessible to everyone. So uh, I don't think there's any excuse for these companies to be using completely opaque algorithms that uh, even researchers like myself who study this uh, can't actually figure out. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, it's definitely something that's got people talking. Uh, they're not happy about handing over all this data. We appreciate your insight into this. Linda Pejadetsky from UTS, thanks for coming on Hack.
Thank you. On the text line, someone says, absolutely dislike the excessive amount of personal data being demanded for a rental application and the risk of third-party systems have just secured a rental after two months of countless applications, having also paid a number of times to pre-qualify our applications. That's the other thing people are worried about, the costs involved for all kinds of background checks and all the rest of it. Another person says one form had a data breach a couple of years ago, um, you know, years ago when these third-party apps were brought in it felt like you had no choice and then there's a data breach cool that was from Sierra as well a lot of feedback on that one we'll keep across it Hack. and I was asking myself am I aroused do I like this am I a creep you can get obsessed with anything on Triple J you know if you live with obsessive compulsive disorder OCD you'll know it can be really debilitating. It can change the way you live your life and not just you, those around you as well. OCD is a lot more than what most people think it is. And because of that, there's still a lot of stigma and we need to know more about what causes it, how to treat it. In a minute, you're going to hear from some Aussie researchers who think they've made a bit of a breakthrough with all of this. But let's find out a bit more about OCD first. Angel Parsons has been looking into it. And just a heads up, this story mentions self-harm. I started getting really invasive, uh, intrusive, uncontrollable thoughts. And they were thoughts that really bothered me, really distressing thoughts about if I'm a bad person or what if I'm not who I say I am, uh, really horrible things. This is Martin Engel, and he started experiencing obsessive compulsive disorder, better known as OCD, in his early 20s. It's a disorder that can manifest in totally different ways for different people. For Martin, he says it involves an uncontrollable ability to think the absolute worst about himself. Am I going to hurt people? Uh, Am I some sort of sexual deviant secretly, so secretly that I don't even know? Really distressing uh, uh, thoughts that I hated and I couldn't understand why I couldn't make them go away. How debilitating was that? Like, how often were you having these thoughts and did that make just regular living hard? When they try to diagnose you for OCD, they do ask that question. They say, how how often are you having the thoughts or how many hours a day do you spend, you know, thinking about it? I find that a really hard question to answer because it is literally constant um, every single moment of every single day. And, you've, and, and, and to the point where you, you are so exhausted. Estimates suggest about 2% of the Australian population live with OCD. It can mean recurring intrusive thoughts or spending an extreme amount of time repeating actions or behaviours to mitigate anxiety. Something like a fear of getting sick, that doesn't bother me at all. But if, if there is a trigger that hits a particular sore spot for my OCD, for example, for me, it's it's a fear that I'm, I'm um, sexually dangerous, that can you know, flatten me for a day because I, I'm, I'm so scared of it. There are so many, like, peripheral things that start to... It starts with the OCD, but it leaks out into so many areas of your life to the point where it totally saturates your life. Martin says he's experienced a lot of shame about these thoughts and says it's a huge reason why some people are scared to get help. At the beginning of my intrusive thoughts, I had no idea that there was even a name for what I was experiencing. Increasing awareness and reducing that stigma is also super important to Victorian man Jason McCurry. It can have significant hold on my life um, and has had different holds 
on my life throughout my 29 years. Jason lives with Tourette's syndrome, generalised anxiety disorder and OCD. Jason got help for OCD in uni and has been on medication to help manage the conditions for 10 years now. A lot of my OCD, some of the obsessions and compulsions are, I guess, more traditional, such as touching things a certain amount of time, having different rituals, checking knobs and door handles and locks and that kind of thing, which are legitimate, um, but it can also be um, one way that it's stereotyped in movies and other things. And some people can also say, I'm, I'm so OCD, my room's so tidy, which really um, frustrates people who live with OCD on a daily basis. So Jason experiences these compulsions, but he also wanted to tell me about another side to OCD that he experiences. For me, I guess the ones that aren't talked as much about are intrusive thoughts and intrusive thought patterns. I have, yeah, I live with many uh, different intrusive thoughts that come almost on the daily around harm, might be harm to myself, harm to others, if I don't do this, this is going to happen. And Jason really encourages others to seek help and talk about it. There's days where you, you feel horrible. You feel like a horrible person. Why am I having these thoughts in the first place? And I think it's talking about it and spreading education and awareness. Martin Engel also agrees and hopes that the more we talk about it and the more resources and studies that look into this, the better the outcomes for people with OCD. I could hardly leave the house. I could hardly eat. That was me at my sickest. Through therapy and medication, I've somehow managed to get a more functioning life and to actually feel pretty good about myself. I'm not cured. I'm not sure I'll ever be cured. I hope that maybe at some time in the future, it is possible. Hack on Triple J. Angel Parsons reporting there. And, hey, there's actually an OCD and anxiety helpline. So if that's raised anything for you, you can always get in touch with that hotline. It's um, it's available. If you Google it, you'll find it. As we just heard before, some researchers here in Australia have announced some really interesting findings from their research into OCD. And Dr Luca Koch is with the QIMR Berghofer, which is a medical research institute, and he's with us now. Dr Luca, thanks for joining us on Hack. Thank you very much for having me. Two percent of Australians are thought to have OCD. You figured out what's likely causing it. What is causing OCD? Well, uh, I think the cause of OCD are quite complex. Uh, they involve a genetics component. They involve neurobiological deregulation, and they involve uh, you know environmental factor. What we have studied is uh, uh, how the brain wiring of people with individual with OCD is changed compared to uh, the wiring that we observe for uh, healthy people have. And we uh, found that a specific part of the brain, particularly regions that are deep in the brain and region at the front of our brain, uh, communicate in an abnormal fashion. And this kind of abnormality uh, is associated to the experience of what uh, uh, people on the program describe, uh, like obsession and compulsion, doubts, and these kind of characteristic symptoms of OCD. So if this is likely caused by brain changes, does that mean now that we know that or have some more understanding of it, we can work on a way of fixing it? Yeah, you're correct. So these kind of research and also other kind of research around the world uh, are now really pinpointing uh, uh, specific circuits of the brain that are involved uh, in uh, the disorder. And uh, this allow us to uh, 
now generate targeted intervention that uh, are aiming to restore uh, healthy uh, communication between these brain regions. Got some messages coming through. Someone says, my dad has OCD in particular with regard to personal and home security. As a result, I feel like a prisoner in my own home. Another person says, please tell people not to casually use the term OCD about how they like to organise coloured pencils or something like that. We wouldn't use the term schizophrenic for someone who has a visual memory and it just doesn't make sense. Dr. Luca, can I ask, how do people know with that what they're living with is OCD and not something else that's a lot less severe? Yeah, someone in the program mentioned that at the beginning it's very difficult for some people to understand why these intrusive thoughts that are very distressing happens to them. I think uh, awareness about uh, the existence of a pathology, the, the disorder that has this characteristic will help the diagnosis and also the reducing of the, the, redu- the reducing the stigma linked to disclosing or discuss this kind of thoughts or this kind of ongoing uh, distressing uh, thinking, uh, it's important to facilitate the early diagnosis, the early treatment of this uh, terrible disorder. Okay, well, we appreciate your insight into this. You're doing a lot of really important research. Dr. Luca Koki with QIMR Berghofer, thanks for joining us on Hack. Thank you very much for having me. And if you want to learn more about Dr. Luca's research, you can find an article on ABC News Online. You'll also find an article on those rental platforms that people are using to apply for properties. There are responses there as well from the platforms. They've spoken to ABC News. And that's all we've got time for on Hack for Now. Big thanks to everyone who contributed to the show. I'll be back for tomorrow's podcast. I'll catch you then. See ya. Hack on Triple J.